the topic of the talk mr bodo balsis will be delivering as already mentioned is meditation and multidimensional awareness before we go to the talk i would like to present a few words of introduction of mr bodo balsis Mr. Bodo Balsis has dedicated his life, dedicated his life since late 1960 to understanding of the nature of consciousness and sharing his unique insights with others. He is a writer, a poet, an artist, a meditation teacher, and a healer. He has studied extensively across multiple fields of life. This includes esoteric science, meditation, healing, cosmology, Christianity, Buddhism, natural science, art, politics, and history. Truly multidimensional. In his writings and teaching. Mr. Bodo integrates his extensive intellectual study with many decades of meditative training and unique esoteric awareness. As a consequence, Mr. Bodo is unique in his ability to provide a high, highly integrated analysis of multiple and competing worldviews and philosophies of knowledge. His advanced esoteric knowledge and insight enables him to harmonize. the multiple facets of life providing a compelling argument for the innate unity of all things bodo has published multiple books his first series the revelation in three volumes was concerned with providing insights into the fundamental esoteric subjects and specifically providing an esoteric understanding of the christian bible his more recent books focus on providing new insights into buddhism and particularly their alignment with esoteric science mr bodo also holds a science degree from university of western sydney he is currently teaching at the school of esoteric sciences near sydney which he established with this few words of introduction i invite mr bodo balsis to deliver his talk thank you Hello. Thank you all for being here. And uh, it was a good introduction. Unfortunately, we've been trying to get uh, some diagrams I had prepared on the screen so that it would make it easier for me to convey information to you. And I'm now uh, bereft of those di- the, the diagrams or the specific diagrams, which. uh means that i have to try to describe things to you rather than uh using it um quite clearly on the screen now on top of the introduction just uh, my background my my way of thinking is basically buddhistic uh most of my books are buddhistic my foundation however is the philosophical uh society uh I was a member of the philosophical society back in about 1968 and um and the derivation of the esotericism of the philosophical society uh via also Alice Bailey's works and those of um the Rorys um Helena Nicholas Rorys plus of course every other offshoot to do with um uh mythology religion various religions and so i gave of course most of you here uh uh hindu and also some of you will have a good command of the sanskrit language and i use the sanskrit of course in my writings but i'm a hopeless uh, linguist so if you think Forgive me if I sort of sometimes mispronounce 
the Sanskrit I do use. The Sanskrit also is, as I said, Buddhistic. It's uh, my books. I've written seven books on, on Buddhism, and they're quite esoteric uh, Buddhism. And uh, one of the things I've been working to do is try to integrate Buddhism with the Hindu philosophy. It's somewhat difficult in many ways because, of course, in the Hindu philosophy you have a concept of Atman, which is a permanent uh, entity, an aspect of Brahman. And with Buddhism, they have Naya Atman, uh, which means no Atman, no permanent self or soul. And so uh, that still uh, is one of the main dividing aspects of, of the two religions. But also in my most recent writings, now I'm writing on cosmology and uh, utilising the cosmogenesis of Blavatsky's secret doctrine, and so there's esoteric cosmology, and it's, it'll be quite a large volume of books. There's actually be a series of books on cosmology. And for that, I need the, um, the Hindu Rig Veda, uh, specifically the Advaita Vedanta, because um, Hinduism is very good when it comes to the creation of the universe, and Buddhism is very poor. And uh, one can almost um, tear one's head out when one looks at the Buddhist um, system of cosmology. And uh, so I'll start with that. And as I said, unfortunately, some of the props I have, you know, normally in the old days we used to have whiteboard, and I think we've still done that written and, and done diagrams on the whiteboard, but here I can't even do this. So, as I said, we'll have to describe and I'll have to try to improvise uh, a lot of the talk I would have given to you today. One of the things I've found in the, um, that interrelates Buddhism and Hinduism, which uh, was quite a, a, a very pleasant surprise to me, comes from the Tantriya Samhita of Krishna uh, Yayo. Veda, and it states the gods are mind-born, yoked to the mind, and have the blissful power of discrimination, daksina, and are the children of discernment. Now, this is a very Buddhist statement. It's, it's a Yogacarya uh, concept also. Of course, the Yogacarya came long after the, this Rig Veda, this Yaju Veda was uh, written. And with the Buddhist uh, system, all is mind and uh, emanates from mind and is resolved back into mind to talk in terms of the uh, uh, Yogacarya system. And also with regards to this, one of the distinctions that I used to think was uh, between Buddhism and Hinduism was the, the concept of, of the Hindu deities, you know, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and, and all the others, Ishvara, and, and Buddhism basically said, no, none of that. Uh, but when any of you look at Buddhist tankas, uh, which are the paintings, and you'll see that there's all sorts of figures that, that are almost identical to the Hindu gods, which are normally depictions of, of the Bodhisattvas, the Buddhas, and wrathful deities, feminine sort of dakinis and so forth. And in Buddhism, all of that is um, described as mind-born, simply that. The uh, aspects of the mind that exist on what we call the Sambhokakaya level. And in the diagram I would have had on the blackboard, you would have seen what I meant by the Sambhokakaya level, which um, is the higher mental plane. And when we go to, uh, from the same um, uh, Veda, and it says a bit later on, the world of God is interwoven with that of human beings. And when you go think of the world of gods and the interweaving with human beings, and then you see that all is mind-born, or yoga to mind, then you can see here that the whole concept of meditation uh, for, for the Hindu uh, is, of course, this 
identification with with um, some of the deities or with Brown, which is Nuta, and it's very similar to the concept in Buddhism called Shunyata, which is emptiness or spaciousness. So this uh, the it's quite important in meditation to actually conceive of what the mind is because all of the meditation process is first of all the working upon the mind and eliminating the samskaras, the attachments to phenomena, to ephemera. With, uh, with the philosophy that I use, there are seven planes of perception. And in, some of you may be familiar with the Blavatsky schema of the seven planes, uh, starting off with Adi, or Adi, the um, highest of the, of the plane, which means singularity, oneness. And the next one down is Anapadaka, which means parent, parentless. And from this particular uh, plane of perception, we get uh, the monad. Now, again, I'm a bit uh, stuck for the lack of the diagram. I've been, in my particular writings, I've, uh, with Buddhism, they say there's no such thing as soul. And when one actually looks at the Buddhist philosophy, uh, is you find when he is directly asked, and normally in, in the teachings, his whole teachings is impermanence. And all of you understand impermanence. And when you're attached to impermanence, impermanent things, transient things, uh, and you attach to it, will cause suffering just simply by the nature of the fact it's impermanent. And that relates to sexual attachments and all the other things that most of us like and enjoy. And we continue the cycle of attachment and, and reattachment. So you go to pleasure, pain, suffering, pleasure, pain, suffering. And the Buddha said, um, this is the mechanism or the way out of this. Then he gave his um, Noble Eightfold Path, which the key, of course, all of that is uh, meditation. Now, what's, but when he was asked about whether there is a soul or not, or whether there is a God or not, directly asked, he remained silent. He refused to answer. And the reason why he refused to answer is but because the, the true answer to this is in between, somewhere in between the, the concept of permanence which the Buddha absolutely shunned and transience. And so in my writings on Buddhism I point out that everything has a relative permanence. Um, and, and you know in, in, um, in the philosophy you get the concept of kashanti, the uh, the minute atomic sort of scale of, of things as modern physics of um, you know, microseconds and things like that. You know, what is the, the smallest possible unit um, to the whole uh, concept of a cosmos, which at present the, the, the concept is that it's um, lived for, uh, say, 15 billion years. And, and your thoughts, thoughts of things, and they also have a permanence, they're all relative. Um, our lifespan has a permanence, and at the same time it's transient. Everything has a birth, it goes through a, a, um, a state of livingness, and then it dies. And the Hindu concept of, of the tree Murti, um, Shiva, the, the destroyer, and sometimes um, given also as the creator, Vishnu, the, the preserver, and then, um, oh well, first of all we go with uh, Brahma, the creator. So you get the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and then um, Shiva, the destroyer. So all of this um, creation of thoughts in meditation, um, preservation of the thought in meditation, the destruction of the thought in meditation is veiled in the, these three deities. And it doesn't really matter whether we're talking in terms of Hinduism or, or Buddhist symbolism. Um, there's the, the concept of three gunas, 
is there. And uh, within the three gunas, then you go to the Ida uh, or Ida Pingala and to Shumna Nadis. So, uh, what I'm trying to get to, <laughs> as I said, without the diagram, is the fact that there is a form on the abstract realm of the mind, on the Sambhogakaya realm, and then the abstract realm uh, is that which uh, is the realm of enlightenment, or what I call the Sambhogakaya, not the Alevichnana um, enlightenment, which is the enlightenment that allows you to see the past lives and project that into the future. And um, this aspect of meditation, or a real aim of meditation at first is to be able to see this stream, a continuity of consciousness. So, what in, um, in this philosophy that I've written in the first three volumes of my Treatise on Mind, which is about three and a half thousand pages altogether, but the first three volumes uh, which uh, explain to Buddhist, using the Buddhist philosophy that there is such a thing as a soul form. I call it the Sambhogakaya flower. And that it has attributes of what the Hindus call Atman. But it also is born and has a, a death. And the, 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 as I said, the, the, the trimurti, the um, creation preserving and um, ending. And the death happens at the uh, Sunyata, when one obtains this uh, nirvana or, or bliss state of no mind. Now, the, the concept of Sambhogakaya flower is uh, given in the Ratna Gotra Vibhaga Shastra, and that means uh, where and they, in the Buddhism, the, the, te- the teachings there is on the Buddha womb, uh, Ratna Gotra. Uh, and so the um, gotra means womb. And the Buddha womb in, in Buddhism is called the Tathagatagaba. And so they, they have a, within the Tathagatagaba, they have the Namala and Samala uh, aspect of the Tathagatagaba. That which is defiled and that which is undefiled. And Buddhism cannot explain how the, um, the, the defiled aspect of the uh, Tathagatagaba. Um, eventually becomes undefiled. And this is a process which I explain in my books. And the entire process of meditation, the entire process of um, rebirth, reincarnation, is to produce this um, nirmala um, tathagata. Now, this is the Buddha woman in Buddhism. All beings become Buddhas. All beings will evolve to become Buddhas. And as I said, there are seven planes of perception. And when we are talking about the mental plane, it's the third of the three pla- uh, seven planes. I'm counting from, above, uh, from below upwards. And the mental plane itself is divided into two. A empirical or concrete uh, aspect of the mind, and there's four subplanes to this, and which is what most of us uh, think we nearly all the time as science and, and, and scientific materialism utilizes these um, this aspect of the mind um, to the nth degree and is what science and technology has derived from but when one is in the, um, endeavoring to meditate one is trying to bridge a gap in consciousness between this Um, empirical mind and the abstract or the enlightened mind. And the the bridging of the gap in the the term for the bridging of the gap in Sanskrit is is antakarana. One must build projections into the abstract domain of the mind. And when, uh, when one starts to build these projections what comes into mind is that which is beyond empirical rational thinking. I don't like the, uh, just use the term empirical thinking, the materialistic thought of that this materialistic universe is all there is. Um, for instance, one becomes intuitive, um, flashes uh, 
uh, of timelessness manifest in consciousness that you can see the future, uh, you'll see the past, and you'll know inner knowingness. Uh, um, what is um, in the Blavatsky books called The Voice of Silence and she's written a little, a lovely little book which is uh, well recommended called The Voice of Silence um, which is about um, the cultivating of the heart and listening to the heart which is beyond the domain of the mind beyond the domain of the empirical mind so this projection process is what all meditators are endeavouring to do. And to project, you must refine consciousness. You must eliminate thoughts to do with this material world. The thoughts of the eye, the me, the mind, and attachments to the ephemeral. The materialism must go. And one is also, as one does this, cleansing the samskaras, the tendencies that you had produced in the earlier part of your life, and uh, most of us remember when we were very young, we had lots and lots of desires, you know, ice creams and whatever, and then you know, we grew older and there was sex and, and money and whatever that people um, attached to. And the process of meditation and building the bridge is to eliminate those attachments, to cleanse the samskaras, and also from past lives, there are the tendencies that you had developed in past lives and are normally sometimes quite strong. In a life, for instance, you may have been um, uh, quite angry or, you know, followed a very dogmatic religion and believed in the form of dogmatism, willing to crucify or burn people at the stakes for the sake of that religion. And so you can understand that type of dogmatism can move through as a samskara in, in the present life and it can manifest, for instance, in scientific materialism. In a former life, they were super, material, uh, super religious. In this life, they are now scientifically materialistic but the same dogmatic attitude is there where they will not ascribe to the meditation world or to the subjective universe um, to them this is anathema um, only that which can be seen, touched, felt uh, experimented with and, and replicated by somebody else's lab over there is the real to them um, where when one is in, working in the field of meditation those things are immaterial. That is not the real. The real is the samskaras that are passing through that must be worked upon and transmuted and refined. And so what comes into process is an alchemicalization of consciousness. Um, I have a science degree and therefore I think sometimes in terms of distillation and redistillation um, so you get the, the basic substrate at the bottom and, and you're boiling it away um, like for instance if you're making sort of petrol and the, all of the other sort of refined sort of um, petrochemical sort of substances from oil right, the oil is a thick black sort of vicious liquid and so it's refined, it's boiled away and then it goes through a fractional, uh, uh, fractational um, column and so as uh, the, uh, the vapours go higher and higher in the column um, as you get higher up, the, the much more refined, subtlest, um, uh, lightest um, compounds are refracted away there and the heaviest compounds are refracted at the bottom of the distillation column and the same is um, with the meditation cycle. Uh, there's a fractation column within you, and it's the spinal column or the chakras. And most of you, because you're here, you've done meditation, you're interested in the subject, you've read books, and you understand that there are seven main chakras. And so each one of these are distillation units, starting from the, the most base at the base of the spine, the sacral center, um, uh, going to uh, you know, the Muladhara and the Swadhisthana and then going all the way up to the Sahasrara Padma in the head. So everything becomes more and more refined. And this is again uh, essential to the process of meditation. Now these seven chakras um, are also associated with the seven planes of perception. And I was starting to, to describe them going from above down um, 
But the most important for all of you um, to comprehend at this stage is the domain of the mind, and below that is the astral plane, and then the Ifric, uh, the four subplanes of the Ifric, or what's often called the Ifric double, and then this concrete world, um, which uh, comprise of uh, sort of an earthy sphere, a watery sphere, and an airy sphere, and fire is omnipresent. It's uh, quite important for, and the, the, the element of the mind, which is, I was going into fractation and uh, the, the um, distillation and so forth, and I mentioned the term alchemical process. And when we go into the subject of alchemy, then you're going into the five elements earth, water, fire, air, ether. And uh, these, uh, the seven chakras are also aligned. Uh, uh, combined in terms of five main chakras because the Arjuna and the Sahasrara Padma uh, overlap and form one in, in reality and also at the base of the spine and the sacral centre. They also f uh, overlap and form one, which in Buddhism um, is the way that they view the chakras. Uh, and then from that comes in the, the uh, subject of the five sense perceptions, uh, the five objects of senses and so forth. And then uh, then the higher derivation of that are the wisdoms of the, the five Dhyani Buddhas, which is the ultimate uh, form of expression. So it's all got to do with distillation of consciousness, refinement and refinement, and then bridge building. The refinement process produces inevitably that bridge building. Now, so I mentioned before that though there are seven subplanes to the domain of the mind, there's three abstract uh, subplanes and then there's four uh, concrete. And I won't go into the qualities, they'll write about them in my books. Now, the abstract, uh, three abstract uh, subplanes, um, they have at the centre of them what I call the Sambhogakaya flower, which sometimes is called the soul in, in the esoteric books. The Christians like to use the term soul, but they don't know what it is. Uh, and uh, it can be equated with um, Atman, but it's not the same because this form, as I said, has a limited duration. If the duration in, um, symbolically is, uh, uh, numerologically, is given 777 incarnations. <laughs> so it's, it's a, last, uh, a vast duration of time. But it has a birthing and an ending, whereas Atman does not. But there is another aspect of the human um, psyche, if you want, which in the Theosophical and philosophical tradition that I come from, we call uh, uh, the monad. Monad meaning singular, and this exists on the second highest plane of perception. And, and this uh, is a cosmic entity, and the soul form itself, the Sambhogakaya, is its vehicle, the same as each one of our. Uh, our personality is the vehicle of the soul or the Sambhogakaya flower or the Tathagatagaba as, as, as the Buddhists will call it in their book uh, the Buddha womb uh, so this uh, monadic form um, is more equable to what Hindus call um, Atman but uh, I, I prefer to look at the, the whole diagram from monad through the spiritual triad and the Sambhogakaya, as that whole unit is Atman, which, as I said, you can't see, there's no, no blackboard. So, what I'm trying to say is there's a, a method of reconciliation between Buddhism and Hinduism, which is essentially what my life's work is, and, uh, and within that, uh, the entire meditation philosophy. When one I is identified fully in consciousness with what I call monad, then one is a Buddha, a Tathagataka, a Tathagata, and one leaves the earth altogether. There's no more need for earth evolution. The, the monad is a, a cosmic entity. It travels through the, the stars. Uh, it was 
in existence before this earth was and will continue after this earth no longer is. And because um, it's the, the Buddha itself, the Buddha mind. Um, and the, what it is, uh, in terms of what you might call consciousness, in Buddhism it's called Dharmakaya, the body of the Dharma, the universal law. But this is quite a vast step <laughs> um, ahead um, of what uh, I'm describing when one is just going through the distillation of consciousness to refine it, refine it, and in, until one gets into the abstract portion of the mind. In the Buddhist philosophy, um, the, the, the pure mind is just called the clear light of mind. And it's um, like uh, uh, crystalline light. There's no um, mentation, no thought forms. And, uh, but when it looks, so it's pristine cognition or pristine consciousness. And when a thought enters into its domain, it automatically um, perceives the past, the present, and the future of that thought. Other than that, it's stillness, serene. And then this is, if you want, the highest distillate of your consciousness aspect. And the next step above that is sunyata, which is called emptiness, but it's, uh, again, I would have loved to have shown you where it actually fits in the diagram. Um, it's the, the fourth um, of the fourth plane down. It's the fourth subplane of the fourth plane down, and which I call buddhi. And within buddhi, the fourth subplane is the plane of sunyata. And sunyata is a, an energy field. It's uh, something like a mirror, but it's mirrored both sides. It reflects into manifest space, cosmos, um, the dharmakaya. Uh, now, the dharmakaya can be also likened to cosmic mind, uh, the mind of the creative logos, if you're thinking of Brahma or um, Ishvara, that mind, whatever that is conceived to you, is reflected via uh, the sunyata into samsara, or into your uh, highly distilled <laughs> um, clear light of mind. Within the clear light, you will see the mind of I'll always put in my writings this word God in inverted commas because what God is is open to interpretation. Everyone has a different concept in their mind as to God and it's different to mine. And, but I have explained quite a, and used quite a lot of words explaining um, its meaning. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm fully aware of Christian or what they call the, uh, the, the religions of the book. Uh, the Muslim, the Hindu, and uh, the Muslim, the um, Christian, and, and the uh, Jewish faiths, and their concepts of God. And it's all different. Allah, uh, uh, all the, the sects of Christianity have different concepts also. They fought wars over those concepts. And then the Hindus have their own sort of um, version of So you can see that these concepts are all eliminated once your mind is at that state. And you can see the reflection of the mind of deity and what it is in consciousness. And the shunyata, it does not alter anything. It's empty of thoughts, it's empty of mind. It just simply is a, a substratum of energy that reflects one into the, the higher, into the samsara, and then samsara, once it's been cleansed of these attributes, up into cosmos. Um, so, but it's an energy field. And it's an energy field that's at the heart of every atom. Uh, everything has at the very centre of this shunyata. Uh, because um, without shunyata, samsara could not exist. Shunyata is the stable base that allows the phenomena to move and change and adapt all around it. But it doesn't interfere with any of that changing. It just simply is um, something like the ground that you walk on. But being at the heart of everything, 
uh, or the source of everything, if you want to look at you thinking in terms of the, the creative process, you know, um, sort of the Hirian, you know, GABA, the, the world egg, or the golden egg, what, what's at the heart of that? And because it's at the heart of everything, then it is also another characteristic of it is universal love. Now, by love, I mean identification with all forms, thoughts, uh, all forms in the universe. And I also use the term universe sort of um, with inverted commas because everyone has a different idea um, of universe. I like to think in terms of local galaxy and don't really want to go too far away from that because that's within um, the domains of my empirical sort of understanding of things. But uh, so it gives you this sense of oneness, of unity, of the all, of the wholeness, and the experience of that um, within the emptiness. Because the emptiness is the way that the empirical mind uh, would, can conceive of it, because it's not mind. And the um, abstract mind, the clear light of mind, is that which can reflect what is manifesting through the emptiness into um, the world of illusion, samsara. So, all of you that are meditators, you have to understand that while you have a dense, um, concrete mind, you haven't yet undergone the distillation process that is needed because all of your precepts in, in the religious scriptures, and it doesn't really matter which script you're using, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist or the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali, or say my, my Nyingma sort of um, background sort of teachings, it, it, it's all got to do um, with refinement. You go through stages, the, the various yoga stages, um, you know, from, from Hatha yoga to Raja to um, Bhakti yoga to Raja yoga to Gnana yoga, Kundalini yoga. Uh, yeah, well, in uh, Raja yoga, uh, it's also called deity yoga in, in Buddhism. And then eventually we get, in Buddhism, there's nine levels of yogas and we get the Dzogchen. Um, so, you know, Uttara Tantra. You know, the uh, yoga, if you want, um, the highest possible form of yoga. So, but it's, again, you start from working with the physical body, then you work with uh, the physical body, of course, it's Hatha yoga, and then you work with um, the emotional body, which is a bhakti yoga. And with the emotional body, of course, the, the pure bhakti is a, uh, are trying to uh, unite in your religion with Krishna, um, the concept of embodied, pure love, um, and you know the, the the flute, if you want the the sound, the nada that that uh, that resonates and, and it coheres all into unity. And uh, so this um, and with other traditions, and also with some of you, um, it's uh, it could be some other deity, Vishnu, which is of course uh, the same as Krishna uh, or um, Shiva. So. So you can see that this uh, concept of union, the, with the concept of union, there, uh, there's a duality. There's God, or your representation of God, Krishna, and there's you, as a devotee. Um, but later on, in the higher forms of yoga, when you're going to Raja Yoga, this, um, you form a non-dual, um, you know, Advaita Vedanta, for instance, non-dual concept. Um, there's no Krishna there, uh, well, that, that it still exists but you're not looking at this union you're looking in terms of a, an expansion of consciousness a liberative uh, form of bliss ananda um, and um, that then brings you to the concept of Brahman or Parabrahman even or what we would call Sunyata in, in, uh, in Buddhism so you can see that the, this concept of um, devotion, but the devotion is necessary because the devotion is the backbone uh, of love, the principle of love. Without love, the, you cannot rise out of the domains of materialism, out of the domains of empirical thinking. 
the love is what unites us. The love is what um, manifests the compassion. The, the love is what liberates. The love, what we call in Buddhism bodhicitta. Um, citta is the substance of mind, and, and, and bodhi or body is um, the compassionate aspect of. Uh, <coughs> I, I call it uh, the, the compassion that. that utilizes, organizes, and moves all towards enlightenment. It's the um, uh, mind of enlightenment is uh, sometimes the way it's described in, in the Buddhist uh, uh, tradition. It's the force of liberation. And this is another aspect of shunyata. Um, it's literally, because it is the center of a, a cyclone, when the those that are working towards the distillation process and reifying, not reifying, but, but sublimating and uh, refining their, their samskaras, their consciousness, then um, they're approaching shunyata and it opens up pathways to, to that form of energy. When that energy enters into mind, its purpose, its nature is to uh, destroy the fabric of mind. Um, and as I said, shunyata veils the dharmakaya, cosmos, cosmic mind, the logoic mind. Um, I like to use the term logos, uh, which is a, a um, Christian term, a Gnostic term actually, um, that was used in the opening statement of St. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and the Word was God. And that particular concept of Word uh, is in... Um, the uh, Greek is term logos, and I use the term logos because within this concept is the concept of mantra, and from mantra everything proceeds, and this is also in, in the Vedas, and that's one reason why the, the, in the Vedas um, the uh, the pronunciation of, of Sanskrit and uh, and all of the the hymns are, are so important. Uh, because uh, the mantra is the energy that pierces the veils between the dimensions of perception. It's the energy that will allow the um, bridge building to the higher domains. And so within all of the meditation teachings that you're given, um, normally you have a preceptor, a guru, swami, uh, that... Um, gives you a mantra or a secret name to listen to. Uh, and, and it's the same also in Buddhism uh, because you meditate upon the sound, um, upon nada. And that uh, refinement of consciousness that it produces, hopefully it will throw out of you um, the, the gross substance, the unrefined, unregenerated aspects of consciousness that is not needed um, in your meditation life. Now, going back, and you can see now, I'm going fully now into meditation because of the lack of diagram. Going now back to samskaras, as I pointed out, the, when you understand karma, and I've written a book on karma called Karma and the Rebirth of Consciousness, and my other books, uh, The Treatise of Mind, goes into the mechanism of karma, and what it is, and actually quite detailed because that is not explained in either Buddhism or Hinduism, um, but my book's showing this mechanism. And so people just um, believe that there's such a thing as karma, and, uh, bec and because uh, you know, it's a belief system until they understand the mechanism. And, uh, and the mechanism is not as simply understood as most of you think. Um, anyway, I've written a book on this subject and I've extended it to explain the mechanism in my later books. But what I'm trying to point out here is the entire rebirth process, if you can think of some millions of years ago when uh, we were animal men, uh, by animal men, <laughs> you can think of the old sort of image of, 
of a, of a caveman of a club and uh, dragging his wife behind him by the hair with that sort of... Um, but, you know, there was sort of highly sensual and uh, not much intelligence, um, totally involved with the earth and, and, and survival and hunting animals and all of that, you know. So if you think of that type of primitive consciousness... And, you know, the, the, the sexual aggression, um, the, the raw, vital emotions and, and violence was in that lifestyle because they actually had to protect themselves from some very savage beasts, uh, you know, saber-toothed tigers and whatever wasn't around in those days. So from that to your highly evolved consciousness that you have now, there's a, that karma that was created then had to be cleansed over cycles of lives. And so there's a continuous cleansing process of karma to produce you, um, to bring you to where you are now, where you're thinking about such things as meditation, you're thinking about such things as liberation of consciousness, you're thinking of such things as sunyata or brahman, um, you're thinking, uh, you know, the scientists are thinking about the, the origination of cosmos, um, where it all came from, and all the other stuff to do with the uh, subatomic world and the, the, the nature's kingdom, you know, the Darwin's survival of the fittest, and all the rest of that. This is um, an evolutionary process um, that has brought, of, brought us from where we were then to where we are going to, and where we're going to is to become logi as, as um, embodying earth spheres such as what we're living in now. Um, you can think of it as Ishvara or, or Indra type um, entities um, where an entire world sphere is our domain, our body of manifestation and this whole meditation process is to lead you from that uh, <laughs> to cleanse those samskaras that are residual from that particular um, period of time and you understand um, people still have that, they have their violence um, some of them have very strong sexual urges. Uh, there's the military machine that, that people are still uh, ascribe to. You know, our governments like to make war. They like to take all your tax money and put it into aircraft carriers and into planes and things so they can kill more people over there. Uh, you can see that this caveman mentality is still in our societies. But those of us that are meditating... Um, uh, are moving, have moved long away from that and we have peaceful lifestyles we are loving to each other um, we're, learning, we're learning all the precepts of what in the Buddhism is called the precepts of the gurus uh, but in your case the gurus are um, yeah, your, your yogi swamis and so forth and, and your sacred books so this whole process the karma and samskaras have been refined over millions of years um, to produce this um, state where you have now this highly refined consciousness. But it's still relative, and everything is relative. <laughs> you know, we can go to Einstein's theory of relativity. I only think in terms of relativity. Um, I can only, um, as, you know, think um, something as, as a, a Buddha, for instance, or a, a Mukta in relationship to where we are now. Um, and they are relative to an entity. Um, that had gained where they are at in a former solar system. The solar system has gone and died, um, and there's entities like human, be us, like human beings that were existing then that have all become um, great minds in the sky that are like, um, you know, they're shining up there in the night sky and they're looking at you. Uh, so, so you can understand everything is relative, and relativity is quite an important uh, uh, aspect of, of the meditation process as well. So, uh, where we are now is that what meditation does is instead of going through this long, slow process of getting there, becoming a Buddha in the end, um, you're hastening the process massively through working upon yourself, through working upon your emotions. And uh, I should talk more about the emotions themselves and more what I call the astral plane uh, because um, there lies the root probably 90% of the problem of all meditators is the emotions um, the identifications that the emotions do uh, what I call kama manas uh, kama with the, um, the, the long A um, desire, right, um, rather than karma. And, and manas you all know is mind and mind 
fused with um, desire or karma is uh, the emotions. And the karma aspect um, must be eliminated. Um, the emotions must die. And then that produces a, a state where the clear light of mind is possible, not distorted by emotional perturbations. Once all emotions bring you to the eye, to the me, the mind, they self-identify you with you in relationship to that over there. And the meditation process is a process of identification with the all. So it's elimination of the concept of the I and mergence and fusions with the everything. And so the emotions is that which stops you. And also the emotions are the causes of most people's sicknesses and diseases. Because of your emotions, you, you, you tend to eat over it. Um, you, you, you know, some people get into fights and things like that. Um, you have arguments with other people. And... These, these emotions, you know, and, and you're critical, the critical mind. So you can see uh, what in Buddhism is called klisha, um, impurities, that are those defilements that uh, defile the mind are the emotional defilements. And so in the meditation mind, in the whole process of meditation, the emotional defilements, the klishas must go. And most of you cannot really imagine what life would be without emotions. But if you can become an enlightened mind, the emotions cannot exist. Um, you can understand this. How can you be serene? Um, your mind like an ocean at all times and being able to see the past and the, and, and the future if you're emotionally attached to this and that. Or if the welling up an emotional, the center of the emotions is the solar plexus center, uh, the Manipura chakra. Okay, so the Manipura is what must be controlled. It's a ten-petal lotus, um, and the ten petals is literally, if you can think of five pranas projected upwards and five pranas projected downwards. Uh, it um, integrates these five pranas from above and below in terms of the concept of the I, the me, the mind. Uh, it's the centre of the personal will, the personally will. And what you're doing also in meditation is to eliminate the person, personality will. What you do for yourself. You know, I want to be rich and therefore you um, plan a whole series of events to, make, to um, bring to you a whole pile of money. It doesn't always work out, as we all know. Uh, but some of us manage to get there and make us a pile of money and we can build a bigger house and have a bigger car and all the rest of it. Um, but in meditation mind, that's not what it's about. You know, you, you, or you'll understand the, the concept of the sadhu, uh, um, uh, the acolyte. You know, they go into the, the caves, uh, the forests, and they renounce all of this materialism and they spend their time um, away from all of that because that is death dealing. Um, uh, spiritually. Um, of course we all have to live in this society and therefore we need money. But we don't need piles and piles and piles of it unless we're going to do something with it that is useful, that benefits society. And this is balichita. You know, build up money so you can help others. You don't build up money so you can build a, a luxuri luxurious ashram. You know, multi sort of crore rupees into the ashram. It doesn't really help the poor on the street. It may help the devotees. Um, it's this type of concept. I mean, it's what we call the uh, the body chitta. I mean, um, the body sattva path. Um, again, body is the enlightened mind, and sat means, as you all you know, eternal um, vas vehicle, uh, or the eternal vehicle of enlightenment. And the body sattva is vowed never to cease, never to get to the ultimate end until all sentient beings have been released from suffering. And so the entire enlightened mind is how to release, relieve everyone from the burden of suffering. And therefore you get Buddhas and you get um, your great yogis. They're all teaching the same teaching. And also in Christianity, and I'm sure in the Muslim religion, there's, there's um, some of their great saints um, also teaching this um, method. And you can see that the personal will is transmogrified. 
It becomes divine will. I mean, there's a whole range of wills from selfishness, um, <laughs> which all of you understand, um, to uh, which is separative and uh, everything sort of aggrandizement to it itself, um, to uh, the will to good. Um, and this is also generated um, so from selfishness to, to self-will um, to the will to good. The will to good is when you will yourself to help others. Um, and then that later um, becomes um, the will of love, <laughs> which I also translate as, as um, a bodhicitta. The, the compassionate consciousness then becomes automatic, innate, spontaneous, and every fibre of your being is liberative. And because we are group conscious, and meditation, and most of you that think of meditation, think of yourself. It's your enlightenment that you're trying to produce, that you're trying to induce. But when you're actually on the path of enlightenment, it's not your enlightenment, it's the enlightenment of the entire group of what you are part of, and you find them in, in time and space, they've been connected uh, all over the world in some cases, um, that are travelling the same um, great path as you. And that um, integration with the group, with the all, because it becomes more and more breaking of the boundaries of, of self-limitation, um, that is what an enlightened mind is thinking of. And therefore you get, um, anyone can tell me when, when to stop, and therefore you get the great yogis amongst you that have sacrificed themselves for the group. And the group are those disciples that come to them. It doesn't really matter whether it's a, a, you know, a, a Ramakrishna or, or Yogananda or Milarepa. They attract to them the disciples that they have from past lives because the Guru is manifested again. And the group are all travelling together um, through time and space and they all liberate also together. First one and then the others. They draw each other to them. So what you all need to do in your meditation is not be so self-focused because self-focused meditation is actually destructive to the meditation mind. You produce certain types and you can easily produce certain types of phenomena psychic phenomena, which is also called city, That's, uh, that leads you into the, uh, us, me, into the uh, dialogue of black magic versus white magic. Uh, there's two types of um, cities. Um, and so it's, it's another vast subject, um, the left-hand path, the right-hand path, and where both lead to. But the right-hand path is the group conscious awareness and then following the laws of group evolution because the karma leads you there. And as you become more and more group conscious, you're learning to become a logi, or a logos, a god. Um, it's, it's a, a sort of, uh, you know, it's a, a logos is not just a singular entity, it's a collective hierarchy of enlightened beings that manifest um, what in Buddhism is called Buddhachetra, a uh, Buddha field. And they're talking of bodhisattvas and... Uh, you know, the courtes of bodhisattvas all around the Buddha. And this is um, the path of enlightenment. Um, away from the self, away from the I, away from the me, away from the self-will. And also later on, you cannot also gain the higher perceptions through the use of the will. <laughs> the will must be sublimated. You gain the higher perceptions through surrender. And all of you know this concept of devotional surrender. Um, some of the, the great teachers have taught that in, in your religion. Um, it's not just surrender to the will of the guru, but just simply surrender your consciousness so that it no longer offers an impediment to the meditation mind that is trying to come to the abstract mind, the dharmakaya, um, or even the force of buddhi, um, the force of um, sunyata. Um, you surrender to that. The, all the attitudes, many in, in, um, in the meditation mind that they want uh, images or they want proof or, or whatever it is that they're asking for, or proof of God, or they want um, an image, say, of their guru to come in or, or some deity. And this also, this is uh, uh, in 
Buddhism called Deity Yoga. This must go, um, because these images must also go. So what is left is the universe, um, is cosmos, is reality. Reality is not conditioned by your personal conditioning, personal uh, mental, emotional ideas about things. Once you have an idea about something, immediately the substance of the mind um, moulds itself around that, and that is what you see. The idea can be an image of Krishna. And uh, the other thing before I close, and I'm sure the time is disappearing, as I said, I've hardly even begun to talk about the astral plane, um, that, uh, which is the, the, uh, the element is water. And whenever you think of something, this watery substance... Uh, the watery astral substance clothes the thought with the desire or the image of the of whatever it is that you're thinking. Now, if there's a lot of, say, Hindus, and they um, have an image, and all of you have seen pictures of Krishna with his flute, or Krishna, sort of the young Krishna, sort of stealing sort of um, um, honey, and uh, and all the rest of it. Now, these images. Uh, uh, are built psychically onto the astral plane and they've given the energy of the thought of the devotee. Right? Now, most of the exhilaration that the devotees have is from the energy field that's been projected into the images that have been created over the centuries, over the millennia, in the image of that God and that they then experience and it gives them a form of ecstasy a blissful nature, an image, which can be bright light as well, but it's not the reality. It's the created form by human devotional minds over centuries, over millennia. And the astral plane, which is where you all go to when you die, uh, it constitutes of myriads of such thought forms of and they're all relative to each other, of small duration, of long duration. And thereby, we get the heaven and the hell states of all the world religions. Um, you know, the, the, the lower desires and emotions and, and sensuality and selfishnesses and all of that produce the hell states. Um, and then the exhilarated sort of um, image-making tendencies produce the heaven states. And when beings leave their bodies or die... Um, what, they, what they do when they go into the state, they build an image, an astral utopia of the ideal form of life that they would have loved to live on while they're on this earth. And therefore there's palaces and lakes and, and pleasure gardens and all of that. That astral plane sometime must die. And in the higher enlightened stage, um, the enlightened beings, they don't live in that. They <laughs> way above that in the higher domains. I haven't even gone into anything beyond, uh, for instance, the, the plane of Shunyata, what I call Buddhi, which I haven't even sort of... Because um, I said this really is a long, long, long subject. I well, it could go into the topic of Akasha, the topic of the atomic plane, um, you know, Anapadaka, Adi, and then the cosmic um, uh, waters, cosmic astral plane, the cosmic mental plane. Uh, so there's all these these higher um, domains, and when you go into the cosmic astral plane, the element is water. When you uh, when the scriptures, the religious scriptures, speak of um, cos an ocean um, from whence everything evolves, you know the seven planes of perception. Um, that is the cosmic astral. Um, the element is water. And within that cosmic astral, all the stars reside. Um, the, 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 the real aspect of the stars. So, uh, so you can see that the, the meditation world which you are entering into when you, you begin um, the, the, the quest for self-discovery will eventually lead you into cosmos. And it's not the cosmos so much that scientists are looking at when they're looking at the materialistic, the material forms out there, and the nebula and the stars and the galaxies and all of that. That exists, but that's not the cosmos you're entering into. You're entering into a multi-dimensional universe where there are, uh, are stars and and um, 
uh, you know, constellations and galaxies that are disincarnate, as well as those that are incarnate, which are the ones that, that you see with the naked eye. Um, there's, you know, everything is going through the rebirth process. Stars, um, galaxies, um, constellations, um, Earth spheres, universes, they're all going through the same sort of process. But you have to think in terms of transmitted correspondences to understand that. But the world you're going to when you eventually become a Buddha is the world that those that have evolved in past solar systems, it's cosmic mind, it's their meditation mind that you enter into. And that meditation mind um, is what creates the uh, stars, the planets, and everything else that you see around you. Um, and, and they've learnt that through um, going through a human stage and, and the distillation process I've mentioned before. Um, the refinement of consciousness, and they master consciousness, they master the, the, the domain of mind, and eventually um, they reach the uh, higher transmuted um, aspect of mind, um, cosmic mind, um, which you can call the mind of God, um, Dhammakaya. Yeah, the, all the religions lose the ability to describe these higher domains. You know, Mahata, you know, we can um, use terminology, but we can only sort of um, think of them in terms of transmitted correspondences. You think of the, um, the plane of mind, the, the aspects of your own mind, and then you think in terms of what that would relate when it's translated into cosmos, where all the stars and, and all the rest of it is an aspect of that. <laughs> so the, um, the universe is vast, and when you're starting to master your own mind, you, you, you build the antikranas, the bridges, from here to there, to the logoic mind. Um, and uh, uh, if I've uh, finished my 